2: Thanks for downloading another episode of the Christian Humanist Podcast. My name is Nathan Gilmore, and I'm a professor of English at Emmanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia. I'm joined on the line this afternoon uh, by Dr. Michael Farmer. He's coming at you from Woodstock, Georgia. Michael, how are things?
1: Uh, They're pretty good, except my internet is going terribly slow today. So uh, if I sound weird or uh, way behind the times, that's why.
2: And another man who sometimes feels way behind the times is Dr. David Grubbs. He is coming at you from Houston Baptist University in uh, Houston, Texas. David, how are things?
0: (laughs) Pretty good. But if I'm way behind the times, it has nothing to do with my internet and everything to do with the state of my soul.
2: There you go. There you go. Uh, So lots going on on the network this week. Uh, We've got a Christian feminist podcast episode on You've Got Mail uh, that should be in your listening devices by the time you hear this episode uh we're also uh cooking along on core curriculum are we not michael
1: yeah we are i believe we just posted episode six and by the time this airs you'll be getting episode seven tomorrow that's plato's cave Cave.
2: very good very good uh we also got a couple uh profiles interviews one with nt wright uh i i conducted that interview enjoyed that a great deal and also one featuring Jay Eldred interviewing and I'm going to probably mispronounce his name, Paul Machko. Uh, and then uh, Michael, I know you commented on the uh, City of Man episode on national conservatism. What did you make of that one?
1: Yeah, it, it's about that uh, recent conference of, of kind of Trump supporting intellectuals uh, and and the movement that they're proposing.
2: So, listeners, uh, you've got your uh, choice here this week. Lots going on on the network. Here on the Christian Humanist podcast, we're talking about an essay by W.E.B. Du Bois called The Afro-American. Uh, and, Michael, for the longest time, all I knew about Du Bois is that you don't pronounce his name Du Bois, and that he was the first black American to earn the Ph.D. at Harvard. What else should our listeners know about the writer as we dig into this essay? He's really one of the most
1: important African-American intellectuals of the period following the civil war. And he follows it by, I don't know. He he starts writing this essay is from 1894 and it's kind of at the very beginning of his career. And he keeps writing into the middle of the 20th century. As you mentioned, he's the first African-American to earn a PhD at Harvard. He's also one of the first sociology PhDs at Harvard of any race. I believe he studied with William James there. Uh, and he's best known for a book called The Souls of Black Folk, which you might have read in your Intro to Sociology class, or you might have read it in your American Lit class, or you might have read it in your Philosophy class. I've taught it in both Intro to Philosophy and Survey of American Lit. It's a very well-written book, which with a, and, and also a very interesting book. He is the only Black writer in the anthology I used to use for Intro to Philosophy, Forrest Baird's uh, Philosophic Classics from Plato to Derrida. So if that's any indication, um, he's, you know, among the most important African-American philosophers and maybe the most important to the degree he's a philosopher at all, really. He's a, a sociologist and a kind of cultural critic. He's best known, besides the souls of black folk, for an, a long-standing argument that he had with Booker T. Washington um, Booker T. Washington's whole idea was that black people should cast down their buckets where they will. In other words, they should they should take the opportunities that have been given to them after the after the Civil War, uh, which are mostly kind of menial labor and and to do that as well as they can and kind of make a life for themselves. And as I think we see in this essay, Du Bois is not happy about that. And uh, he, he has something rather more grandiose in mind for, uh, for African-Americans. You can set him against Booker T. Washington on the one hand, and you can set him against uh, Marcus Garvey, the black nationalist, on the other hand. Uh, I think as his career goes on, he gets closer to black nationalism, and he actually ends up leaving the United States for good, and he moves to Ghana um, during the last decade of his life, and that's where he dies. So you, you can you can kind of watch him over the course of his career become more and more cynical about the possibility of white America accepting African-Americans. Uh, yeah. Did I leave anything important
2: out there, Nathan? No, you hit all the high points. Uh, David, how familiar were you with uh, Du Bois before we uh, read for this episode?
0: Other than some short excerpts, in uh, American literature anthologies and kind of general background overviews for things like the Harlem Renaissance, uh, almost nothing. This was uh, this was really interesting for me, mainly because of the way I was venturing into territory that I hadn't thoroughly explored before, and always felt 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 kind of bad about.
2: All right, all right. Well, hopefully this piece's opening narrative uh, gave you some. Uh... I guess good places to begin thinking about Du Bois. I think it shows us some of the cleverness of Du Bois as he sets up some of the questions that he's going to engage in this essay. So David, tell us about this opening scene, and what things about this scene should we remember as we dig into the essay more broadly?
1: Well,
0: I think the first thing to remember about the scene is the uh the the date of the event. <laughs> Uh, the this essay, um, based on on uh, what you provided with uh, for us, uh, Nathan, if I remember rightly, is late eighteen nineties, mid eighteen nineties, somewhere around in there. Um, eighteen ninety four to
2: eighteen ninety five. Okay. Right. It was an unpublished piece.
0: Yes. So, Continental Railway, uh, a continental uh, train, uh, is the 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 scene uh, a third-class carriage uh, he specifies uh, so you know going across Europe on a train with a not super expensive ticket uh, and then just sort of remembering this time period and setting it along the background of uh, the Europe especially European colonial experience uh, in Africa and with Africans so uh, it begins with just people looking at him um, noting the ways in which he appears different uh, the color of his skin the texture of his hair um, but also his hat and his clothes um, are also examined uh, it seems because of the ways in which uh, they don't match uh, the stranger's expectation of what ought to go with someone who has his physical features Um, also you know Maybe they're American styles. I don't know. I wasn't there in the mid 1890s. Uh, and eventually, uh, someone decides to engage him in conversation um, after deciding this is uh, after deciding that he is not uh, neither wild nor a member of a passing circus. Uh, which, okay, that's pretty awful. Um, they speak to him and uh, about trivialities, compliment his accent, and then they, the question is, your native tongue is? And he replies, English. At which point, they guess that he has an origin that is basically anywhere except for the United States of America. Uh, and once he tells them that's where he's from and that he is, in fact, uh, uh, as he says, of Negro descent. Uh, it is at this point that my inquisitive friend uh, realizes that he is face-to-face with a modern problem. He recollects the emancipation of several millions of slaves in the United States some years ago, and has since since heard, more or less, of the trouble which naturally follows with this horde of partially civilized freedmen. And so, uh, the best line in the essay uh, even though this this stranger on a train has heard many things about the the people which uh, Du Bois represents, uh, he had no more quote no more imagined himself discussing this race problem with one of them than he had planned talking Egyptology with a pyramid.
2: I love that line. I really do. Yeah, yeah. It's
0: it's pretty great. <laughs> so yeah the stranger on the train uh... not the hitchcock movie and there's no murders plotted but this uh... this encounter with strangers and uh... the things that the stranger knows about uh, his situation um but with never never having or, or having first had the opportunity to connect um that strange situation in another nation with a particular person um, yeah it's it's i think it's a really effective uh beginning to the essay um it puts you into the the strange space that du bois uh occupies, knowing the ways in which he is atypical um but also knowing that the very fact of his atypicality will be immediately, in his estimation, misinterpreted by the person who speaks to them. Um, And so he feels as if he needs to explain why it is that even if he is atypical, um, that doesn't mean necessarily what they think it means. And that's what the rest of the essay unpacks, that the situation is more complicated than they think.
2: Right. Michael, anything else about this scene that you want to comment on? Yeah, I, I would connect it to a couple of
1: parts of The Souls of Black Folk. Uh, number one, in, in that book, he says that every interaction between a white person and a black person in America features the unspoken question, how does it feel to be a problem? Which is very much what uh, this, op- th- this, this opening passage felt like rehearsing. Uh, for that for that scene in um, in Souls of Black Folk, which is ten years after this. So I, I thought about that. And then I also thought about the big concept in Souls of Black Folk, which is double consciousness. And the notion here is that um, people who are part of a majority culture just kind of see the world in a relatively simple way. But people like African-Americans who are part of a minority culture have to simultaneously see the world and themselves as they see the world and themselves. And then also the way that the dominant culture sees the world and themselves. So they're kind of split in the middle of themselves. And there's there's some psychological damage done by that. But also it gives them, I think the word he uses is second sight. It's, it's kind, of, um, kind of magic powers in its way.
2: Mm hmm. mm -hmm. And just to call back to something that David mentioned, I mean, you know, on a European train, uh, you know, I mean, this is the era, you know, the a couple decades after the Franco-Prussian War, when the African colonies of France and Britain really start to expand and really start to become part of a world economy. Uh, So, I mean, it is interesting that, you know, the the assumption is that, you know, his his primary tongue is going to be something other than English. Um, because, you know, again, uh, America is not the only part of the world that's not Europe. (laughs) Right. You know, it's funny that it takes place in Europe
1: because James Baldwin very famously moves to Paris because he feels like he doesn't have to be black there. That, that, um, blackness is not as big of a deal there as it is in the United States. I can't evaluate that statement, but it's just interesting to me that 50 years before that, uh, du Bois is not finding Europe to be a place where he can kind of forget about his race.
2: Yeah, that is interesting. Well Michael, the the opening part of the essay proper, as I'll call it, uh, deals with conjunctions of class difference, race difference. I'm tempted to call this intersectional thinking. would you would that anachronism be a good name for what's going on through sections five or or in sections five through nine or would you call it? something other than intersectionality.
1: I think intersectionality is a pretty good term. And I, and what's more, I think intersectionality as a concept owes a great deal to Du Bois's notion of double consciousness to begin with. Do you know what I mean? Oh, yeah, yeah. Say a little bit more, though. Yeah. yeah. So the idea in these sections is that things are really bad for poor people in the United States. Um, and And so you might be tempted to Write off some of the problems that Black people complain about in 1894 as being, oh, you know, these are these are just problems among poor people. And in particular, he says that uh, education for poor people all over the country is is terrible because oh, there's such a great line. Let me um. Let me find it. The state following the peculiarly American principle that the poorest and most ignorant of her citizens should have the worst and shortest schools, since, forsooth, they paid the least taxes. And yet, calling it. A like class I said, problem,
2: I, I had forgotten how clever Du Bois is.
1: He, he's a great writer, which is why Souls a Black Book gets taught in literature classes
2: and deserves to be taught in literature
1: classes. He also wrote poetry, and I think he wrote um, fiction. But anyway, if you're tempted to write off these problems as being class problems, which is a which is a move that still takes place today, uh, Du Bois wants you to know that uh, things are way worse for poor black people than they are for poor white people. Because in addition, in addition to the the problems you get from being poor, you get the kind of racial prejudice issue and all the additional problems that that. Creates and then the the problems that it exacerbates in poverty and other kind of downtrodden classes and you know what a um, what an intersectionality uh, person would say is you, you have to think about the the people he's not talking about which is that however bad it is for poor black men it's going to be even worse for poor black women right because in addition to the poverty in addition to the the racial prejudice they also have um, the, the, they're a, a triple minority in that sense. So yeah, I mean, I think this feeds very nicely into uh, the kind of 21st century dialogue about intersectionality, uh, even though that same dialogue would, I, I think, have to critique Du Bois um, for his own uh, his, his own omissions.
2: Very good. Well, Grubbs, uh, Du Bois lays out three big schools of thought that show up when white Americans attempt to address the so-called race problem. Uh, And Du Bois always uses scare quotes, incidentally, when he talks about the race problem. Uh, I'll confess that I expected something different from the radical solution, Uh, but we should lay out what Du Bois sees at the close of the 19th century. What are the Ricardian, the philanthropic, and the radical responses that he narrates?
0: Sure. So the Ricardian is his first which uh, he says uh, involves the the principles of the Rousseau Smith Ricardo School of social philosophy so um, Rousseau we know Adam Smith uh, Smith is uh, I'm, I'm I'm just assuming it's the Adam Smith we all know and love.
2: Yeah, it's Adam Smith. Uh-huh.
0: And the Ricardo is a gentleman by the name of David Ricardo, who I didn't know about till I was trying to figure out who this Ricardo was. Because I, I Not Ricky? It, yeah, I figured it wasn't Ricky or Lucy. Um, so for this particular school, uh, this particular uh, option th- is focused on the notion of... of Economics and sort of free free competition um, in, in the way that uh, Du Bois presents it. Uh, n- here's his his sh- the introduction of their solution. Uh, w- the solution was to emancipate the slave, give him neither land, tools, nor money, and leave him to the mercy of his former masters to work out his own salvation by free competition. Again, there's those uh, uh, Du Bois scare quotes. Uh, with the American freedmen, so this seems to be a um, you know w- will give you legal freeman uh, legal f- uh, emancipation uh but then that's that that gives you now now you have the freedom to earn your prop- prosperity in a in a free con- a competition and free enterprise system uh which uh he says doesn't make sense because uh, you know in the in the system uh, of this school of social philosophy or, or economics that he's presenting here, as he represents it, it takes for granted things like a stable society, um, certain things about class and equality of opportunity and things of that nature, none of which were true about in, in the situation of the emancipated slave of African descent, um, especially in the South during the Reconstruction after Civil War. So, uh, uh, with a certain degree of irony, he calls this... Uh, the the most extreme application <laughs> of the Smith Ricardo economics ever made in a s- civilized state, because none of the uh, of the other uh, I guess controlling sliders in in the in the society are where they ought to be for this to work, and it doesn't. The second, which he calls the philanthropic. Uh, his summary here is, uh, it is a child of the 18th century, a development of those one-sided moral and social ideals that made man purely the result of his individual environment. Uh, he praises their ideals, um, they have high ideals for humanity, um, committed to the Rousseau-Jefferson half-truth, he calls it, all men are created free and equal. and uh, the way the the philanthropic uh, attempts to solve the situation is through creating well first uh making sure that there is legal emancipation and then providing money to educate and assist in charitable ways um, while teaching and and I- teaching an ideology of of equality and focusing on Educational opportunity and social relief. Um, this, he also says, is not uh, it, it has has a certain degree of success, but it's not it's not systematic. It's not organized. It's too narrowly focused on the wrong sorts of problems. Um, it's providing. Uh, as tools for change, things that he does not seem to regard as particularly helpful. Um, he, he, poked, he points especially at churches and uh, theological bickerings, not entirely sure what he's, what he's pointing at, but uh, he doesn't seem to have uh, much, much truck with the efficacy of uh, the, the religious side. Of this particular approach.
1: Du Bois had a kind of lifelong problem with the Christian church. He, he felt that Christianity either was a tool of black oppression or failed to adequately do anything about black oppression. So it, it didn't surprise me to, to note that snide little uh, remark about uh, theologizing.
0: Okay, so this is something that I would have recognized if, if I'd read more widely in his work, I would have recognized this, this allusion to something that gets developed more in other places.
1: Yeah, I think so. Okay.
0: What the philanthropic approach neglects is the basic, uh, what he calls, uh, economic helplessness and dependence. Um, that uh, n- no amount of... Of sort of social relief and education is going to replace the fact that the uh, the freed slaves of African descent uh, don't have property and capital to serve as leverage and a a sort of fund of fund of wealth from which to work um, on upon which to build. So. That, that's also ineffective. Uh, the radical, which you found, um, uh, I guess, most surprising, Nathan, is the one that says white, ama- white American attitudes are not going to change. They're not going to accept um, the Afro-American. And the Afro-American is incapable of improvement, so they should just go somewhere else. Uh This, uh, he says, was a radical school of opinion uh, that lies on the oft-repeated phrase, this is the white man's country, again, in quotes. Uh, And essentially describes the situation uh, of the African-American citizen of the U.S. as one that, because of their kind of inherent, I've, uh, okay, I'm not going to summarize it. I don't want to put it in my own words. Um, they st- Okay, this is what he writes. They stand on a lower plane of humanity than we. He is speaking f- uh, with the voice of of, uh, the, of the representatives of this view. Um, They stand on a lower plane of humanity than we, and never have in the past evolved a civilization of their own, nor under a favorable trial today do they show any ability to assimilate or forward modern culture. Therefore, as a lazy, shiftless, and bestial folk, they must, in accordance with the universal law of the survival of the fittest, yield before the all-conquering Anglo-Saxon, and must be either transported, isolated, or left to slow and certain extermination. Which is awful. Um, but here too, I, and you can really see the sociologist breakthrough with each of these. He kind of, it, where we might be inclined to to start the critique at um, a moral point, uh, he starts it on kind of a factual and sociological, a more sociological point. Yeah, I'll, I'll put it that way. Um, what he quibbles with is whether their representation of of the improvement among the population of of free people of african descent in the u.s whether whether they have actually demonstrated that they aren't capable of improving their situation through their own efforts and his argument is is, is that they're, is that in spite of uh all of the uh disadvantage in spite of of the ways in which um, their, their efforts are being opposed and opposed at at worst, um, you know, subverted and not enabled at best, um, that nonetheless progress has been made, which, which he says, um, puts the lie to that, that claim that there is no improvement possible. Therefore, um, send them off or sequester them. So, yeah, not th- three not great options, uh, which is... Right, right.
2: <laughs> and, and, David, I think the reason that the radical solution caught me off guard is because I saw the word radical, and I immediately thought of the radical Republicans that passed the 14th Amendment. So I figured he was uh-huh. going to talk about the people who actually thought that, you know, uh, black people were human beings, and therefore we should adjust the laws accordingly. And then it was not that at all.
0: It seemed to me like he classed them uh, uh, among the philanthropic, uh, among the philanthropic, uh, who who saw that um, that sort of ideological legal move in the direction of a of a morally philosophically correct position to be sufficient.
2: Now, Michael, I, I, this is my uh, the rust flaking off of my american history but did people make reference to the radical republicans in the age or is that an imposition of later historians
1: i don't know the answer to that
2: question i'm sorry all right right. i i i I didn't tell you i was going to be asking it so i (laughs) um but what what else is there to say about this passage michael
1: do you do you agree with me that he doesn't really present a practical alternative to these three. I mean, he he rightly points out the problems with all three of them, but I don't see anywhere where he he gives another school of thought um, that we ought to be subscribing to. And maybe that's why he didn't publish the essay. Maybe he's just kind of working his ideas out
2: here. Could be, could be. I mean, I, I you know, like I said, I was expecting the radical one to be something like the radical Republicans of the you know mid to late 19th century. But yeah, I agree. I mean, you know, there the what he seems to be getting at is that uh, when people treat quote the way the race problem unquote as a problem, uh, you know, they tend to come up with terrible solutions. I mean, the the philanthropic is probably the least terrible, relatively speaking, of the three, but it still has serious shortcomings, serious flaws.
1: Yeah, yeah I mean, I, he he, he I, says it's. It's done some legitimately good things, but to depend on it is a big mistake.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I feel like he he doesn't want to offer a a fourth easily thumbnail sketchable position because it was a mistake to to treat this as one problem anyway. You know, his his fourth right. position is to say. There is no one problem. There's actually these several different problems, and they each need their own conversation and solution.
2: Right. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah, that sounds sounds about right, David. Uh, Michael, I want to talk about one section that that struck me and and really kind of troubled me as I was reading. Uh, Du Bois grants in several places that white people accuse black people of immorality, up to and including rape. And nonetheless, the amorality of capitalism, as Du Bois narrates it here, leaves actually honest and religious black people unable to survive unless they are willing to become precisely the immoral sorts of people that you know their exploiters accuse them of being. So, I mean, say a little bit about this passage. Is this a socialist critique? Is this an articulation of moral relativism? Is it something else? Well,
1: there there is something for everybody to hate in that paragraph, uh, as I'm sure you agree. Because he, oh, yeah, yeah. Out, he, he outright says that, yeah, uh, black people aren't as moral as white people on the whole, even though he also says, you know, I, there's no other race in history that has made as much moral progress as we have in the last 40 years or, or however, uh, 30 years, I guess it would have been at that point. But he's still he's still coming right out and saying black black people are not terribly immoral. But then uh, then he says, but that's mostly white people's fault. So uh, whatever white people he had on his side by agreeing with with their um, racist uh, accusations of black people have have likely left him behind at that point. So it's difficult. And, and again, I wish I wish he had published this essay so that I would knew, know who he was talking to. You know, what, what sort of magazine is he publishing it in? And who does he see his audience as? I, I really get the sense here he's talking mostly to white people about black people. And, and for that reason, that paragraph can feel kind of backbiting almost. It, he, he feels almost like he's selling out his his race in order to make his political point. You do still hear people make this argument. Um, I, I personally don't know how to evaluate it. You you guys may have a better idea than I do about whether the crisis of the African American family you you sometimes hear about is really the fault of slavery or what. But uh, certainly, this is a this is an argument that has legs and continues to be used and. I suspect nobody wants to touch it. Cause on the one hand you have to, you have to say that black people are immoral as he does here. And on the other, you have to say, but it's not their fault as he does here. And I don't know, that is a, that is a no man's land for a white guy to step into. You know what I mean?
2: Yeah, it absolutely is. And like I said, I mean, that's why, I, and this might be just my own reading habits, but I mean, I was inclined to read it as a sort of socialist critique. That, you know, this is sort of an inevitable uh, consequence of, you know, the economic and the political uh, conditions, for lack of a, a more specific term. Uh, but then, like you said, Michael, I mean, I, I, it shifts to moral language uh, so readily that I, that I have trouble making it a socialist critique, strictly speaking. David, do you have any, any light to shed?
0: Oh... No, man. I, I I I feel like we're so far away from the conversations that he's engaging, um, that I it I I can't imagine what voice he's speaking back to. Like so, sometimes yeah. you can kind of you you can you can sort of tell by the way that he argues, by the way that he speaks. You can sort of build out of the negative space of his statements. Uh, the shape of the opponent or the shape of the interlocutor in this case uh i'm having a real i i I just don't know what sorts of things would have been said that he would that he would say yes some of that's true um yeah I, i i can't i can't yeah i'm not gonna venture
1: and it's, inter- it's interesting you. to hear him say this in 1894 because, how do I put this? I, we, we always get in trouble when we talk about race on this show, and I'm, I'm mindful of the fact that I don't have a whole lot of credibility to talk about it. But when you hear people talk about the moral condition of African Americans after the Civil War, nowadays you hear almost nobody saying, oh, yeah, and black men were out there raping people. Um, so I don't know if they really were, mm-hmm. and we just don't talk about it now because there's a kind of lingering sense of victimhood um, to to those men who really were victims. I, I I don't want to discount that, or whether Du Bois is falsely agreeing to something that really wasn't true. I don't know, because if you if you <laughs> See the problem is, as a white person, you're really damned if you do and damned if you don't on this situation. Because if you if you do say, oh well, you know, uh, black men weren't actually raping anybody, it opens the door. What, who was the politician? Was it Paul Ryan who said a few years ago that the ending of slavery was was the worst thing that could ever happen to the black family or something like that? Because they were they were much they were their families were much stronger during slavery. Some some white politician said that. Um,
2: I do not remember that, but that's horrifying.
1: Yeah, he didn't say it in quite that stark a terms. Do you, do you know what I mean? But but that was the implication. Which yeah. So I don't know. I, I, this is a this is a very difficult conversation for me to wade into. Yeah,
2: that yeah. makes some sense. Like I said, I was mainly wondering about you know, and and honestly, Michael, I mean, you know, the the empirical side of it just hadn't even occurred to me. I was just wondering about the the grounds for his critique, right? Because if it is a socialist critique, he pulls back from it. If it's a if it's a relativist critique, it doesn't fit with the rest of the essay.
1: I don't think it's a relativist critique at all.
2: Okay. No, I, so I mean, not? I
1: think I think it's a sociological critique. To to be sure, that that he he is arguing that to the extent that there is widespread immorality in the black community it's because they've been treated like animals for 400 years 300 years 200 years however long they've been they've been treated like animals for for generations and generations and generations and you know without making any kind of statement about the immorality of black people at the end of the 19th century i don't have any way to judge that but i would i would say that that argument makes a great deal of sense to me it, when you when you debase people, when you degrade them, it, it is reasonable to expect them to act in debased and degraded ways. And um, it's it's not as simple as saying, oh, well, they're choosing to do those things, which is also not to let people off the hook just because they come from bad environments. And also, I, I, I end up wading back into this issue without meaning to, Nathan. Save me from myself.
2: <laughs> well, I I don't think there's any saving anyone from it. Like I said, I mean... It struck me as odd coming from the pen of Du Bois, and that's why uh, I wanted to spend a little bit of time on it. But, uh, you know, again, without drawing uh, any too easy parallels, it does remind me in certain limited ways of uh, J.D. Vance's critique in, in Hillbilly Elegy, right? I mean, there's a... And, and, you know, this is one of the big critiques of that book, is that it, tend to, it tends to moralize social problems and it tends to socialize moral problems and i think that people on both sides of that conversation get frustrated with that book for similar reasons yeah i mean it's a it's a hard a
1: hard line to walk right because obviously there there is a there is a sense in which our morality is affected by the conditions we live in which is why Uh, Which is why the classic ethical question is, would you steal a loaf of bread to feed your starving family? You know what I mean? Like, that question doesn't make sense unless sociological considerations affect your moral considerations. And yet, you also don't want to reduce people to the sum of their environment because that, in its way, is just as degrading as anything else. You know, it's it's suggesting that people don't have free will, that they're just machines that um, give a certain output when you give a certain input. And so... You know, to his credit, he he mentions at the end of one of the sections that sociology is a tough science because uh, the the subject being studied is actually you know a person with a soul, uh, as is the person studying them, and that that sets it apart from all these other sciences. And I, I think that's an important thing to keep in mind when we're having this this conversation, maybe the reason he pulls back from the sociological explanation is because he sees that sociology is limited in its ability to provide explanations.
2: That's fair enough. David, anything else you want to add to this?
0: Other than, other than the, just, just to underline again, the ways in which he will actually frequently withdraw back from a question of morality or um, the 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 political or ethical rightness of a situation into sociological observation um, and I think that's actually a tool especially if uh, especially since he is um, he seems to be writing this essay uh, within a, a European context I wonder whether he's what 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 he's what he was trying to do when he drafted this was to create an argument that would that would read as objective as as scientific in a particular kind of way in a particular European context.
2: Yeah, that makes good sense. It really does. Well, David, in the essay's home stretch, Du Bois says that there is no single race problem. You nodded to this earlier. Uh, but rather that there are four related but distinct problems. Uh, and those pro- four problems are education, political dis- disenfranchisement, moral decay, and the resistance of America to black advancement in the previous three adv- endeavors. So one moment in the political section, section 24, Took me off guard, uh, at the end of that section, David. Do you think he is being ironic or earnest when he calls for substantial reductions of voting franchise for the ignorant in America?
0: Oof. Well, on, on one hand, you've got the that that soci that sociological emphasis that uh, that I just mentioned, and he's got this practical tone through much of this essay that even if we even 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 if he does agree with enfranchisement of all in principle he's also enough of a sociologist to acknowledge the negative effects that uh, that a universal enfranchisement can create and and to at least countenance the possibility that the negative effects of that enfranchisement might outweigh the principle. Um, so, maybe. But... Yeah, it's it.
2: Oh, go ahead. Sorry, <laughs> sorry. That, that, that was a dramatic pause. Sorry.
0: <laughs> but, is the conjunction that I follow this with, um, I'm sure that he also knows that nobody in the white-majority government wants that kind of education based disenfranchisement because I mean they got their demagogues too they got their political machines that 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 are dependent on you know you know rustling up a vote amongst people that uh, you know Du Bois would also regards as uh, the you know the, the the voter who is too ignorant and debased you know to 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 be you know, Moving the society in in an actual positive way with with their enfranchisement, I mean, like they, they had their political machines too. They had they, they had all that stuff, right? That wasn't a race problem. Um, that was a a a a political demagoguery problem. All right. So maybe this is if you read it as kind of a reductio ad absurdum. Um, to say, okay, sure, um, maybe there's a, you know, sure, there are some negative effects of the enfranchisement of an ignorant and uneducated demographic who can be easily gulled, um, into voting in ways that would, that are, you know, against the good of the community, including their own good. You know, okay, that's true. Then, then let's just disenfranchise all the ignorant, um, you know, no matter what their uh their race or or ethnicity or whatever you know let's just disenfranchise ignorance no no takers, <laughs> okay, then let's deal with these problems distinctly instead of taking what is really an education problem and treating it as if it is a uh as if it is a race problem um I mean that that that's that's kind of how I read that section as, as like a really really subtle subtle reductio ad absurdum to say, you know, the the reason why this makes sense to you that we're going to disenfranchise the Afro American population is because you've crossed the wires, right? You've crossed the streams, which you should not do according to Ghostbusters. Um, that the real problem is ignorance, but if you disenfranchise ignorance, you you guys don't want that. <laughs> cuz you profit by it a little bit cynical but i mean he does talk about uh the 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 influence of uh that oh, what what where's the, uh, the his phrase um the ignorance and uh in the badly governed parts of the north where the ignorance and venality shown uh, venality of white voters made government so often corrupt and ridiculous so yeah that was a thing and so I, I that, that's kind of how I read that he's 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 calling a bluff even though it wasn't a bluff it was actually a threat
2: <laughs> what do you think Michael
1: I think he was a hierarchist now I, I think I like David's reading I think there might be some of that there but the other the other concept that Du Bois is known for is the talented tenth, which is that African Americans are going to be led by the okay. by ten by the ten percent of their population who are capable of doing really serious intellectual labor, um, and and so when when he says let's disenfranchise the ignorant and the barbarous, I did not read that as sarcastic or um, or rhetorical. I I. I don't have a hard time believing that that's what he would like to do. But I, I think that's why it's important. He points out, you know, that's not just going to affect black people. I, you know, there's an awful lot of ignorant white people who are, um, who are voting against their own interests, as you said.
2: So let me follow up on that, Michael. I mean, so you think that, you know, this is an idea that is coming into its first form here and then takes its fuller form in souls of black folk, or I'm, you know, on david's reading that's something that might have arrived at later but he was still in a more democratic frame of mind here you think it's pretty constant through his career then
1: let me look up when the talented 10th essay is it's it's not in souls of black folk
2: oh is it not i thought i remembered
1: it in there it might be in there but it's published separately yeah it, it comes out in 1903 so yeah that'd be something he was building up up to i suppose it was in a collection okay. of essays right. called The Negro Problem.
2: Okay, that's interesting. Yeah, I, I, like I said, when I read this, I mean, I, I, again, you know, having read The Souls of Black Folk, but several years ago, I remembered that that sort of uh, anti-democratic vibe there. But I, I really did wonder, I mean, you know, uh, like David said, I mean, this passage in the context of this essay reads more like a modest proposal than it does like, Republic, if that makes any sense,
1: and maybe Nathan, I'm less of a populist than you are, so I'm less I'm less horrified by the suggestion, and so I didn't I didn't see where it needed to be satire, and and I I don't know that that makes me right and you wrong or you right and me wrong, but I I do well, but I mean I did not read in the context
2: of this. Gotcha even in the context of this text though since he had just spent a fair bit of text on education as something that needed to be reformed that seemed a strange Uh turn to make
1: Uh, but he's he complains very early on in the essay about the worship of the populace uh i'm trying to find that let's see here
2: yeah, yeah, I guess he does. Hmm.
1: W.B. Du Bois is not a populist. He he believes in a hierarchy. You no, know, it's a hierarchy. It's a kind of technocracy, technocratic hierarchy where it's the people who who are educated and know things and are good leaders, but uh, he he's you you are not going to have much luck turning him into a small d democrat or a large d democrat in 1894.
2: Yeah. <laughs> well played sir well played um yeah i i i I still wrestle with it david i mean any other thoughts on that
0: none um but do do we have what where was he in europe do we need to imply do we need to infer anything like that is he imagining like a, a like a french audience because then we might need to bring those kinds of ideas in um, he's, he's living
1: you know. in the United States when he writes this essay, David. He's working at Wilberforce University in Ohio. So to the degree he's talking about Europe, it's just, it's just as this anecdote at the beginning. I don't think he's writing for a European audience.
0: Okay. Okay. All right. So, so I took that as more controlling than it should be.
1: He lived yeah, in Berlin for a period, but I, I, I think this is an American essay written... About American Problems to Americans. Okay.
2: All right, all right. Well, Michael, you know that I'm always interested in exploring differences between texts, so I'm going to do that as we wrap up today. What text, American or otherwise, would you suggest as a companion to The Afro-American by W.E.B. Du Bois, and how do you imagine that the two might illuminate each other? Uh, And when you're done, pass it around to David. David.
1: I'm going to suggest two, actually. One, a work of philosophy and one, a work of literature. Uh, The work of philosophy is Simone de Beauvoir's The Second Sex, which is published in 1949. And to some extent follows a very similar track as this essay in the sense that she is interested in the ways that women are kind of kept down by men's expectations of them and internalizing those expectations. Um, so I, I have taught Beauvoir alongside Du Bois before, albeit Souls of Black Folk, and I think they um, they make a very good pairing. The other thing, the, the work of fiction I would suggest is Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man, which I, I think to a large degree comes from a Du Boisian uh, perspective, even though he also... Critiques that perspective as he critiques just about everything in that massive novel. But if you haven't read *Invisible Man*, um, you know, read it and and see see whether you agree with me that there's there's something of Du Bois in that uh, novel.
2: David, what do you have?
0: Well, I read very little politics, philosophy, or sociology, and that's less than 500 years old. So uh, I would pitch uh, Pierce Plowman uh, is a 14th century um, medieval dream uh, Middle English dream allegory um, that contains a lot of analysis of the class structure of the of of england at the time um but one particular section of it is called uh piers half acre in which piers the plowman the kind of archetypal farmer um builds society from the ground up with each vocation each class uh coming to the farmer and asking um what uh what's my job uh, because they all know that they are ultimately dependent on the farmer being able to do his work so that they can eat um, it's not a representation of society as it was it's a it's a kind of uh, it's a kind of a ima- reimagining of, of the society uh, upside down or from the ground up um, in which you know the point of the aristocracy is not to lord it over everybody else but to keep the uh, to but to keep the region um, you know safe from from invaders and social chaos so that the farmer can bring in the harvest and everyone can eat <laughs> even the hunting of the aristocrat is for the sake of the farmer because the 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 beasts that they hunt in the woods are the sorts of things that wreck the fields um, but that uh, that kind of bottom-up uh, perspective of of uh, of a society, uh, someone who is is writing from the perspective of those who do not necessarily have the institutional power, um, whose whose interests uh, were not consulted in the shapes of the social forms that uh, that shape their lives. Uh, Pierce Plowman, I I think is doing some of the things, some making some moves that uh, I think are are similar to this essay in, in, in the ways that it invites you to rethink, um, the ordinary formulations of a social, of a society's problems.
2: And here I thought I was going to have the weirdest pairing. I, I, (laughs) but David beat me to that. Uh, What I think I would pair with this, and this is more for my own thinking than it is any kind of uh, educational context, uh, would be Immanuel Kant's critique of practical reason. Uh, The reason for that is that, as we've talked today, the moral questions in this essay tend to get socialized. Uh, And, you know, like I said, it's troubling in the places where he doesn't socialize them as totally as I anticipated, Uh, But anytime moral questions get socialized, I I am inclined to go back to something like a philosophy of moral freedom, Uh, and of course you don't get, you know, much more uh, dedicated a philosophy of moral freedom than Immanuel Kant, Uh, just to remind myself that when one uh, sort of systematic totalizing picture of human society starts to get too compelling, I probably need to bring something in to disrupt it and shake it up and uh, expose its contradictions. Yes, friends, I remain a '90s postmodernist, even here in 2020. Uh, we'll tell you what, listeners. Uh, this was not an easy text. Uh, we were also wrestling, as Michael noted at the at the top, with some technical difficulties. Uh, but we still want to hear from you. What do you think uh, we should have dug into more as you read the essay? What kinds of things uh, should we have handled differently? Uh, but in the meantime uh michael what is our uh, next episode going to be
1: we're going to talk about sentimentality
2: so listeners if you uh feel like listening to that uh you can do so next week <laughs> uh I, I i somehow i knew i'd get a reaction from david with that one uh <laughs> uh the christian humanist podcast is part of the christian humanist radio network you can find us at christianhumanist.org or on facebook you can find our Twitter handle at ch radio network on Twitter, uh, and of course you can find our personal Twitter handles. Uh, I don't even try to pronounce Michael's, uh, but you know you can find David and me at realgrubsy and at n gilmore. Uh, we want to thank uh, our press liaison, Kristen Filippic. Uh We want to thank, or I want to thank, uh, Michael Farmer for editing these episodes. And uh, in behalf of David, in behalf of Michael, this is Nathan Gilmore saying, let your sins be strong, let your faith be stronger.